Oliver Queen had spent the Silver Age copying Batman's cave and car, but unlike Batman, he wasn't going to get a second chance. There'd be no new look reinvention to make him popular again. After a few final stories, he was about to become just a supporting character in the Justice League. We set off on one last tour of Star City to see whether Green Arrow would go out with a bang or just another bland whimper. Hi, my name is John. And I'm Matthew. And we are the DC Detectives. It is our job to go back through the annals of DC Comics history and chronicle the evolution of all your favorite heroes from start to every reversible finish. All right, we said we would do this last episode, and we're doing it finally. This is pretty much going to be the end of our Green Arrow coverage for quite some time, as we are finishing out the 1963 to 1964 era of Green Arrow in World's Finest Comics with one appearance in The Brave and the Bold. Now... We had some discussion about this last time, and I think we're going to save this to kind of the end of the episode where we kind of have a little bit of a roundup of the solo series of Green Arrow. But I think it's fair to kind of say that this is going to be a shorter episode, kind of like last one was, because there isn't a lot of content to really go through, which is possibly why this is the end of his run in this other book. Um, that being said, do you have anything you want to say before we start? Uh the stuff I have to say is kind of like sp spoiler isn't the right word, but uh, a little bit of context of how it ends. Uh, so I guess the question is, should I jump into that now or hold off until well, after? Well, if it's if it's kind of a summation thing, we can wait, we can wait till we're at the end and then we can have a more comprehensive discussion. It feels which I think a little more like a postscript. Yeah, I think this episode is going to have a little bit more of that because this is the first time we've ever really ended coverage on a character. I mean, we did kind of end a lot of coverage for the Golden Age characters, but we kind of skipped that to go to the Silver Age, and that was kind of outside of our hands. We were starting to run out of back issues to get, to get. This is the first time we have the ending of a person's run within the back issues that we have available to us. And I think that's kind of a unique situation. So... Uh, Joanne, again, this is going to be shorter than most, but we're going to kind of take our time to go through some of these stories. Um, we're going to start with World's Finest, number 132, March 1963. Ollie hurts his leg in an off-screen incident, and he's bedridden for quite some time, and Roy is concerned that without the Green Arrow around, the criminals are going to have a field day. So the two of them concoct a plan to use a decoy balloon of Ollie... Uh, dressed up like the Green Arrow to kind of shadow Roy as he goes out and stops crime for a while. It works pretty effectively, surprisingly enough. This weird sort of weekend at Bernie's situation. Um, until, like, <laughs> the balloon gets popped. And it's very obvious <laughs> it was a balloon. <laughs> and because it, it was the whole time like it, it, imagine a balloon that looks like it's in one of the frames of a run animation that they've dressed up like green arrow and it's just kind of strung along behind roy i'm like no one's gonna buy that right it's like a macy's parade balloon just kind of hovering behind this young man but apparently the criminals in you know uh, star city are just idiots so the world may never know why that was the case, but, you know, they, they kind of bought it for a while. And the funny thing is, Ollie kind of goes out of the house anyway to kind of protect Roy and shows up even with his 
busted up leg and it was like why weren't you doing this the whole time if you could have done this to begin with <laughs> he, he kind of plays the role of like an artillery piece at that point uh he shows up he basically airdrops in and just fires from standing still and doesn't have to walk anywhere so it feels like a cop-out it it makes some logical sense he can be at the scene uh he wouldn't have been able to participate in like any chase downs but it's just it doesn't do anything for me and it feels a little too a little too much like a cop-out it's hokey it's a very hokey story yeah. and it's it's just a shame um the next story we're gonna get to is world's finest number 133 may 1963 uh, a scientist makes a digging robot sort of mech suit thing um shaped like a dragon because i, I mean why why not start early with the zoids fandom um <laughs> Or Zord, yeah, Zoids, wasn't it? Zoids, Zords or Power Rangers? Zoids are the tiger things that. There's a lot of anime jokes that I'm throwing around right here, folks. Um, yeah, I mean, it's a it's a giant robot that he makes, and it gets in the hands of some criminals, and they accidentally tunnel through the arrow cave, and they don't really pay attention that they've done that. So Ollie and Roy are like, "We got to stop these guys before they realize that they just found our secret hiding spot." And eventually they do, and they wipe the tapes that are in the robot, and we're all fine. But it is a very, like, neatly wrapped up and neatly solved situation of, oh my god, someone almost figured out our secret identities, but not really. <laughs> through through absolute sheer dumb luck. Through Grand Theft kind Robot? Of just, yeah, it, through Grand Theft Robot. Yeah, which is just, you know, probably a better game in general. If there was a GTA game where you stole Gundams... Oh, man. I mean, you get there kind of at the end of Saints Row 3, but yeah, a little different. But still, but still, like if I could steal, you know, Death Scythe or Sandrock and just lay waste to a town, wasn't that just Ooh. a Robotech game? I think there was a Robotech game on the GameCube where you could just blow everything up. There were some, uh, I think. There's uh, a lot of Robotech games. Uh, we're going to move to World's Finest number 134, June 1963. Criminals pretend to be kidnapped scientists to get brought to the scientist's lab and then steal a bunch of stuff. Um, this is a very roundabout story, which is essentially criminals kidnapped some guys. And then when Green Arrow and Roy or Green Arrow and Speedy come to save the guys, the criminals have, have disguised themselves like the people that they've kidnapped so that they can be brought back to those people's homes and steal a bunch of things. I know I kind of just said that, but it sounds confusing when you say it in the Reader's Digest version and it requires a little bit more of explanation. Um, however, the notable thing in this issue is that Arrowette returns. And again, Arrowette proves herself incredibly useful in, in this story. Not in a like, oh my God, you're so helpful kind of way. She's not as helpful as Speedy, but she knows what she's doing which really does make me feel like she should have been part of the team the whole time after she was introduced. Cause I feel like that would have added something to this title than just, you know, adult and young boy crime fighting team having this, yeah, having the sidekick woman would have been fun. And that's one of the things that we're going to sort of see as we go through this. There's, even though this is sort of the end of green arrow for a while it's it's not like they're taking any swings for the fences and changing the status quo yeah it's 
It's very business as usual. Yes. World's Finest, number 136, September 1963. We did a bit of a jump there from June to September. He didn't appear in the 19, in the 135 issue. Just a heads up. Um, so this is the August-September issue, 136. Uh, Green Arrow and Speedy catch a criminal magician hiding out with Incas by going undercover, by having Ollie go undercover as an Inca. Uh, the last word I have written in the summary is yikes. <laughs> um, it's just really, I mean, there's brown face, there's cultural appropriation. There's a guy who looks like a a white man with a black goatee and a turban magician. You know, the kind from old like in Bugs Bunny cartoons. He looks like that. <sighs> Bamboozling a Central American population that is referred to as Incas. And Green Arrow goes undercover as a native Incan, native Central American, to discredit this man while Roy helps from afar. There's a lot that's not good about this story, and we could go on and on. Um, But suffice it to say that we won't, because I'm pretty (laughs) sure I covered it all in that awful, awful sentence. Um, that just went on forever. So we're just going to move past that terrible story to The Brave and the Bold, number 50, October, November 1963. So this is the first and only issue outside of the world's finest issues that we were covering. And uh, it's two It's two of the last place guys having a story together. And what is probably a really good story for the both of them, to be fair. Green Arrow and Martian Manhunter have a team up in this story. And like I said, it's the two last place guys, the two weakest books that we're reading at the moment, Um, which makes me wonder if this was just somebody going, God, just put them in the same book and see if that saves them. Because as if Justice League isn't enough, as if them appearing in the flagship title with all the other characters isn't enough to save these guys. They've got to put them in their own issue of Brave and the Bold, which is this is a full 24 page story, mind you, as well. So it's the whole mag. Um, Green Arrow, Speedy, and Martian Manhunter all team up to take on Volcor, who is a Martian criminal who has come to Earth and broken out his cohorts, who have been disguising themselves as Earthlings for a while, and now the Volcor is on Earth. They break out of prison, which happens to be in Star City, and they start doing Martian crimes, and Volcor is searching for a, a, a doomsday device, essentially, a big space scary science weapon, um, and trying to re- rebuild it so that he can do villainous things capital v capital t and they obviously stop him um because look at how not taken over the dc universe's earth is by martians um but the thing about it is it's like you know they kind of do their whole three-act structure of like oh we got to team up oh we got to find him and oh man he's got a science thing that makes it hard for us to beat him and he keeps mind blasting green arrow into like fighting martian manhunter because he's got a weaker brain because they have telepathy because remember martians can do everything and then the third act is martian manhunter disguises himself a green arrow and green arrow disguises himself as martian manhunter so martian manhunter can combat the psychic fight that volcor is going to do on him and then green arrow does arrow stuff um it's clever you know for them for the it's the most well thought out story that we've seen for those two characters in a while outside of justice league which happens to be a story with the two of them and you know, given 24 pages to actually breathe. The shit that bothers me in this issue 
is that Jean Jean, the Martian manager, goes back to Mars <laughs> in the middle of the story to learn about Volcor from the Martian police force. And I'm like, way to remind us that your entire storyline doesn't matter anymore. His whole bit used to be that, oh, I can't get back to Mars. And we covered in our last episode of Martian Manhunter coverage that he got back to Mars and his brother showed up. Yeah, I remember Tom, Tom Jones, Tom Dijon's showed up and now he can go to Mars because he fixed Professor Erdell's machine. It's like all the stakes out of his book keep being taken away from him. And now we're just being reminded that there is nothing going on in his book other than he's just choosing to be an alien on Earth. And I was just like, please don't remind me of this. And without any kind of, like, cathartic wrapping up moment. Yeah, um, it wasn't a big deal. It was just like, well, now I can go here. It was it was as ceremonious as Ollie and Roy getting the arrow boat. Yeah. It, it's a fiat change in the status quo. Exactly. It is, it is definitely that moment in the video game where you're being told, this is the forbidden kingdom that you must never go, and you go there as the third level. And you realize, like, oh, wow, there is so much more to this game than what was ominously described as such an important location. Clearly, it isn't. And all the mystery and the drama and tension and build up to that are just lackluster at this point because you're just like, well, that's not good. A perfect example would be in the Red Dead Redemption 2 game. And this is just because it's on the top of my head. And I've been playing it a lot lately. You never go back to the city that they are escaping from at the beginning of the game. And if you try to, Pinkertons and sheriffs will instantly spawn the second you cross the county line. And boy, howdy, did I try to fight them off. And you die every time. They are very insistent upon, yeah, you could probably sprint all the way to the town, but you're going to die and there's going to be no situation in which you're not going to get shot. This is a very difficult place for you to go. And I kind of like that. And that brought up, the, brought up the mystery of it. You're like, yeah, I really can't go back there. I know it's there and I probably could try, but I really can't. With Martian Manager, it they could have very easily have done like he builds the robotic brain and he just can't get it right. You know, he rebuilds Erdell's machine and he tries and he just can't figure out what Erdell did. Or maybe it doesn't work. You know, and that would be a great thing in like every Brave and the Bold story is that some other superhero shows up and tries to help him fix it. Like Batman and Martian Manhunter, the story starts with Batman trying to help him fix it. And then something happens and they have to go on the story. Just a, co a continuous thread that Martian Manhunter can't go home. Everyone is trying to help him. If nothing else, it would form because there are all of those different power sources and styles that would be sort of brought in you would have some very interesting and uh, and varied uh story types story prompts yeah. at least building the boat on gilligan's island would have ruined the show building the robotic brain for martian manhunter so that he could go back to mars ruined the book <laughs> when that was his his whole gimmick his whole goal and you gave it to him and you didn't change the goal He's just a dude now. Yeah, that that's the other side is it's it's one of the other issues with reducing characters in this age. It, especially these kinds of characters as compared to Green Lantern and Flash. There is so much done to reduce these characters down to a few bullet points 
that you take out one of the bullet points and it's they're just not the same character or they don't have the same value as they used to. Whereas you could take a lot away from Green Lantern or Flash and it would still be, okay, he's still the same character. It's just his circumstances have changed. Yeah, they are very delicate houses of cards. Mm -hmm. I genuinely think supervillains are the key. Because if you look at Aquaman, he's just as weak as the other two, except he's more exotic. Mm -hmm. But both Martian Manhunter and Green Arrow have no motive. They're just there. Aquaman is just there, but he's also king of the seas. So there's kind of a job that he's got that he's got to keep doing. Um, Wonder Woman is the ambassador from Themyscira to man's world. And she's trying to bring peace to the world because then she can finally rest. Um, Green, Green Lantern is a space cop. There's always somebody that he's got to protect. There's always somebody he's got to fight. And now Sinestro's a thing. Not only is Sinestro a thing, there's a whole core of Green Lanterns that he is now a part of. Flash has dozens of bad guys. Just, just lots of bad guys. And constantly teaming up to fight him. And he's also a cop and a forensic scientist. And he's got a girlfriend that he's trying to marry. So he's got a few other things, but he's got lots of villains. So there's always somebody for him to fight. Batman's always got somebody for him to fight. But he's just, that's all he does. He has no other job. He's just Batman. Take away the colorful bad guys and he's not really that special. Same thing with Superman. He's only got one, two, maybe three major bad guys. Brainiac. Luthor. And Metallo. Oh, Ultra Humanite. But like Ultra Humanite hasn't even shown up in a long time. So yeah, nothing. Nothing really there either. He's just Supermaning around. Adam Strange. Ran, uh, ran, got to get back to Ran, got to get back to Alana. That's my big thing. It's always got to have that going on. Uh, Ran is constantly in peril. The Hawks are cops. It's a little boring, but we get to go between the planets and see how that's cool. And they chase cops, you know, they chase criminals from planet to planet. Kind of like Green Lantern. They have a relationship. They also have a secret identity that they have to maintain. The Atom doesn't really have anything. Just his girlfriend. So you kind of start to see that, like, the ones that are weaker and stronger really do hinge on what they have going on in their books. Green Lantern and Flash comics aren't necessarily longer. They're just better written. Because sometimes they have the same pages as Superman comics. Sometimes they have the same pages as Aquaman comics. Sometimes they're two stories in one, like Wonder Woman. They're still better. So, just something that we've been noticing. Uh, the last, we have got two more issues here. The la- uh, second to last one here is World's Finest, number 138, December 1963. Um, a guy kind of makes a Green Arrow satire act, like a, cr- a clowny sort of Green Arrow thing, and he's doing it out of reverence for the Green Arrow, saying, like, you know, he does such a good job for us, I'm trying to, like, kind of do some pratfalls in, in honor of him, and, you know, just, we love him so much, and we're just kind of having some fun. And it's kind of sweet until a guy frames the clown arrow for... Um, there's some crimes and Green Arrow and the Clown Arrow kind of like stop the the bad guy. It's it's the guy the agent of the Clown Arrow is using the the gimmick to steal. Not a particularly in depth story, but it's just kind of like meh. Okay. Um, the last issue of World's Finest the Green Arrow appears in for this era 
is world's finest number 140. So we went from 134, 136, 138, 140. He has stopped appearing in every issue. He has now started to appear in every other issue. Green Arrow and Speedy help uh, defend people trapped in like a mist dimension. They kind of make this reference to like the Sargasso Sea, which is, which is I guess, think of the Bermuda Triangle. Just a place where stuff disappears. And uh, this is the Sargasso Sea of Land. Sure. Just a big foggy area where a bunch of people from different eras have disappeared and they all seem to be living at the same time. You've got like Napoleonic troops, a Western caravan, a guy from ancient times, and then just a just a big F off bug monster. And Green Arrow and the folks there and Speedy all fight off the bug monster. And they're like, nah, we're going to hang out here now that there's no bug monster. And he's like, you're not going to come back to the real world? And they're like, nah, thanks for thanks for killing a big bug. And they just kind of leave. And that is the end of the coverage. Again, there were some issues that show up in like 1967 and 1969. We'll look at those when we get to those years. But we're not there yet. And so we already started kind of talking about this. But yeah, these are these are business as usual kind of books. And it makes me wonder if they were just like, don't tell anyone. Just let it happen. He's going to keep showing up in Justice League. We'll, we'll leave him there, but we're not going to editorialize his, his ending. Honestly, it's what winds up happening after uh, 140 is even more of a dismissal, I guess. It's not like Green Arrow as a backup story is getting fired. It's more just laid off or automated out because specifically starting with this the backup story is a reprint just Mm. every issue of world's finest it looks from a from a scan uh issue 141 through uh number 198 is the backup story is a reprint and they're not even reprints from that long ago necessarily like I think it's 142, maybe 145, somewhere in there, is a reprint of a uh, Adventures of Lois Lane, Superman's Girlfriend, from like three years before this. It's just, I don't know what happened, but they made the decision that there was better value to be had by making the comic cheaper to create than to try doing anything to try to resuscitate Green Arrow. Or Aquaman, for that matter. Like, that was, for a, for a long time, uh, like, 130 to 133, and issues before then, it, it was a Superman-Batman story, and then two backup stories, almost always, of uh, Green Arrow and uh, Aquaman. I think at one point we might have had uh, some other character in there in the rotation, but they they just made the call of first off they made the call to transition to uh, just two stories, so one primary and one backup, which was a trend that we had sort of seen in other comics earlier, like even like Flash. I think Flash especially shifted from being consistently even then like three stories to two or even one. Uh, and then there was some other comic that we were reading, maybe it was Action, uh, that did a similar shift 
from three stories to two. I think it was action. Uh, so to some degree, it's catching up with that trend. But but to fill that second story with a reprint in the midst of arguably a, one of the biggest comics renaissances, it just hurts. And like we sort of talked about, there was never anything in any of these stories that really feels like a swing for the fences. Like the, the story that is the most weird and different, I guess that there are one or two in here that are fantastical and more that have like some sci-fi or super, I'm not going to say super villain ish. I'm going to say super science moments. Like the first story we cover in, uh, I think 133, 133? No, 132. Uh, when he's got the balloon uh, version of Green Arrow. Uh, the the criminals have, like, jetpacks. That's just that's just their shtick. Uh, yeah. So that's... It's like the, the shark outfit guys in the previous episode. That's right, yeah. So it's even it's even less of, of a change and an experiment. It's just... There's nothing here. And then they go out on the Sea of Sargasso story, and it's like... That setting, especially, we've seen in a bunch of different media because it's a it's an it's a trope that has some value to it, but also they don't do anything new with it. And it's just oh, and there's a big giant bug monster here, and we're gonna shoot it with two halves of a meteor that are making people hate each other, and that's just right. that's just it. That's just it. That's how it goes out. I wish I knew about the. The behind the scenes, because comparing this end to what Batman gets with the uh, with the new look and Denny O'Neill being told like, "Hey, you've get you guys, you Julia Schwartz." Actually, that's right. I don't think it was Denny O'Neill, but Julia Schwartz being told like, "Hey, you got however many issues to figure out Batman." Like, I don't know why it was that they felt it was worth in that case versus in this case beyond the 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 brand of batman being there uh, it's just you're using that space for you're using that space for reprints and at a time when you could have said hey some some random dude just some writer and artist hey Take a swing at flashifying some other hero and just put it in there. I mean, Gardner Fox can crank out work. He couldn't crank out another 10 pages a month. It just, you hate to see it. Yeah, there, there's a level of half-assedness. Yes. Yeah. It's, it's just like, meh, well, fuck it. Kind of. And it's, yeah, it's peculiar. It is a certain level of acceptance at defeat that comes across where it's just like, yeah, if they're doing reprints in the in the rest of the issues, they don't care. They're not going to care. All right, then don't care. You know, like if you're not going to care, put these guys in other books. You know, or, and I mean, I wonder if half of it was just like we have you guys on contract. You have to do more issues. We can't end your contract, you know, like they could have been done with the book, but they're like, we have, we wrote these guys in for another three more issues. They have to write issues. Hmm. So they kept them writing 
and they put reprints in there so they wouldn't have to continue to to hire more people but they were like well we've got these guys on retainer for another three issues let's make him write three more issues and just be done with it could even be as simple as a budget thing where i I wonder whether each editor had a certain amount of budget and maybe the decision was just hey it doesn't matter how much extra money uh julius schwartz's fiefdom is making if uh this is coming out of whitney ellsworth or uh jack schiff's fiefdom only has uh, x amount of money to play around with if it if they were so insistent on defending their fiefdoms that they wouldn't even try spending a little bit of extra money from their pile to move somebody else in on one of their books. It mm. just it just hurts. I mean, neither of us have run a publishing company <laughs> in the extensive time that we've been alive. But it is one of those things where you sit there and you go, I'm not saying I could have done better. But I feel like there was a way to do this that wasn't this. As an outsider, it's very easy to see that. And especially for the two of us who, you know, we're coming at this, you know, I don't know, dozens of years late. <laughs> um, it's You know, hindsight is twenty twenty. you know, and I'm 100% willing to... Um, admit that and, and acknowledge that and say like you know i could i could have absolutely no idea what i'm talking about and same thing could go for you and we may never know because some of these people aren't alive anymore i mean if we could talk to denny o'neill about some of the stuff i would love to um but yeah sometimes you're just like god there could there had to be a more graceful way or if anything a more respectful way this character was around for multiple years and the idea that Green Arrow, who is now a flagship character, who has his own television show that has gone on for eight seasons, was getting outread by the challengers of the unknown is so funny and fascinating and interesting. You're just like, what, what bizarre consequence of events happened in the 1960s DC offices that was just like, meh, and I don't, I don't care. We I mean, got we got to cancel this. We got to cancel this book. I, there's even the more modern side of it. The uh, I'm I'm sure I'm going to misremember the exact quote, but and I'm also content warning uh around the killing joke, but I I think this was how the line went. Uh Alan Moore writing the killing joke saying, "Hey, that girl isn't being used right now. I want to do some injury to her." Uh, yeah, I checked the exact quote and uh, in a 2006 interview with Wizard Magazine, so I'm pulling from Wikipedia right now, he said, uh, quoting Alan Moore, uh, yes, quoting Alan Moore about a conversation with uh, Len Wayne, I'm sure I'm mispronouncing that, who was the editor on the project. He said, yeah, okay, cripple the bitch. It was probably one of the areas where they should have reined me in, but they didn't. Side note, I feel like I should reread that at some point because it certainly hit me big at one point. I don't know to what degree it would resonate or ring true now. Like, even Joker now, it's hard for me to separate my feelings about the movie from my feelings about toxic masculinity 
and that narrative of victimized male, victimized masculinity, I guess. Um, but regardless, I think we can all agree that the fact that we got Gail Simone's run on Batgirl and especially the idea of Oracle coming out of Killing Joke was one of the best things, intentionally or not, to come out of Killing Joke. Yeah. I mean, I never actually really read The Killing Joke. I've been sort of spoiled off of Alan Moore. Fair. Um, Fair. Personally, I, his his writing style is not my favorite. Um, I know of its significance, and I'm sure at some point I will actually sit down and read it, just like I'm sure I will actually sit down and reread Watchmen at some point. But yeah, I there's a level here where it's like there's a lot of stuff behind closed doors, and there's a lot of old stories that were never told and a lot of shooting from the hip that was probably done in the editorial room, especially during the silver age when they were just trying to keep themselves alive because the commerce code had screwed them over so thoroughly and they're just trying to make money and they're not making money. It's not like this is right now where there's tons of movies and things like that. And they, they're, you know, they're trying to stay in the popular eye of the people because, you know, the Marvel and DC are having the movie fights and stuff like that. I think this was them going how do we how do we keep people interested if this guy isn't doing it then we get rid of him which begs the question why the hell did they not do that with martian manhunter yeah somehow green arrow was worse than martian manhunter and i cannot i mean look look green arrow is bland in these books he is not terribly exciting. The stories that are good are like, oh, yeah, that was good for a Green Arrow story. Martian Manhunter stories are just like, what are we doing here, guys? And is, is it because he had powers? I don't know. Like, I, I just I genuinely don't know what the. Uh... We'll see when we get when we get to this point as well. Like we can do a compare and contrast of like 1962 to 1964 of Martian Manhunter. And we're like, was this any better? Did he get better suddenly? Was he no longer the worst book? Was he ever the worst book? But it's it's bizarre to me that Mar- that Green Arrow gets the bag first before Martian. All right. Uh, other things or anything further to uh, go into on that? I think when you get to your final wrap up, we can talk a little bit more about the the death of an archer, and you know we'll go from there. Mm-hmm. But I mean, honestly, if you have more more notes, then you can go ahead. I've got a few other bits, but that was definitely like here's the big thing that I want to reflect on. Um, Let's see, what else? Um, one thing that I I want to do a comparison of at some point, uh, but we've talked a little bit about how Speedy is drawn like as more adult-ish than, more of an older teen than the other sidekicks, and certainly like that is a a piece of his portrayal that has sort of carried through, uh, see young justice, for example. Uh, mm-hmm. but there is a, in, I think number one thirty four. I just have written down like speedy is drawn legitimately buff. And I want to do that comparison of like physique between characters. Uh, cause there is, I would be interested to do like both body type and uh, inf- implied age. Yeah, I wonder if there is like a style guide 
at DC. Like, this is how you draw an older, like a teenager versus a child. And also, like, if I could find stories where where Speedy and uh, Aqualad were in the same story, and just how do they handle that? Are they do they collapse them? Do, do the artists collapse them down to a single age and build just oh this is what kids look like, or is it actually like part of their characterization? Do, do, or more accurately, does the creative team view it as part of their characterization for them to be at different stages and different physical builds? Um, and the answer yeah. is probably different based on which creative team is doing it because. God knows consistency is never the strong suit of this group. Oh, sure. And, you know, it changes depending on artist preference. I mean, I'm sure we would get more realistic children if Carmine Infantino was doing this. Yeah. With regards to the story about the Inca, um, first off, yes, you're absolutely right. Let's breeze on by it. But one thing that I noticed that I had to call out, at least they weren't speaking pidgin English. I guess. Oh yeah, was, they weren't speaking broken English. It was one hundred percent just like they were talk. There was no differentiation beyond. There was maybe word choice was a little bit simpler, but the grammar was still correct, and the grammar did not denote uh, like simplicity or childishness. It was that element that is so often present in these kinds of stories just wasn't there. That they that they reserve for quote unquote primitive cultures. Yes, yeah. So, yeah, all still all weird, but also uh, a thing I felt I needed to bring up. Uh, that yeah. being said, like one thing that does did sort of reinforce or still have a childishness to it was there was a lot of focus on like magic and superstition. Uh, like we mentioned, there was someone uh, who is the classic like uh, orientalist uh, magician faker type. Uh, so there is still that like superstition. Uh, oh, who's got the best magic kind of situation. So there's still that, but not the grammar. Funny Arrow was cool. Like I, yeah, I genuinely like that. The <laughs> the design was also just kind of nice. The like very black and white face to look a little more Harlequinish. Um, yeah, very like old school clown like Pagliacci and Puccini. Yeah, well not Puccini but Pagliacci. Yeah. Uh, oh, Miss Arrowette. Like Miss Arrowette still gets yeah. done dirty. Uh, the lotion yeah. arrow. It's. I mean, it's par for the course for this type of writing, yes. and also the guys giving her shit for like being a gal and whatever. But it's like. She did fucking save you and did help you guys out. Don't talk shit to her. Her arrows may be weird and like super niche, but fuck if they didn't work. Yeah, it's it's less the effectiveness and more actually, yeah. Like across the board, there is one there is one part in that story where she is ineffective for purposes of putting the dame in danger. Uh but mm-hmm. generally competence is there. Uh but mostly it's just you're the you're the female character so everything is hearts and makeup and just the misogyny everything is in that yeah everything is girl shit which is dumb however i would like to state for the record that arrowette is both style and substance yes all her stuff is fashionable useful and it does the job 
which I cannot say for the boxing glove arrow. <laughs> Ollie. <laughs> Girl has a lotion arrow. I bet that that works as just regular lotion. But it also doubled as a way for you guys to track somebody because it spilled lotion all the way behind itself after she stuck it to a car. I think it works. Yeah. <laughs> Moisturizer as well as a tailing tool. I Like, what more do you want from her? She's utilitarian. Yeah, sure, it's a little, like, you know, overly femme, but she's allowed to be. There is inherent misogyny because it is supposed to be played down as a negative. Yes, you are correct by the writers. It is downplayed that way. But if this was written now, and this is how she was, and she leaned into it, 100% I'd be on board with this character. And and to kind of bring it back around, like, that's one of the strengths of... That's one of the reasons it's so important to have not just one character of a given marginalized group because when you have more than one woman in your uh, comics, you can have the femme character, you can have the butch character, and it's it's not like everybody has to speak for their group. Yeah. So we talked a little bit about like what the editorial situation could have possibly been at DC at the moment of this happening. The idea that they were possibly just throwing in a, too much jelly at the wall and it wasn't sticking. While that is a, an interesting sort of analogy for the way that the DC writer's room, the DC editorial office probably was in the 1960s, coming you know almost 10 years now after the comics code, and with the success of Justice League and the success of Green Lantern and, and Flash... It's possible to look at the death of the Green Arrow annual stories as kind of... It's like the 2005 Ford Thunderbird. <laughs> and and go with me on this. Mm. Very interesting looking car. Did not look like the rest of the Thunderbirds that Ford had made in the 60s and 70s and, and so on. But it got a revival back in 2005, and it was a very sleek-looking, kind of trying-to-be-sexy-futuristic car. And the second it didn't work, Ford canned it. Now, Ford is removing every car from its catalog that isn't a truck or an SUV or a Mustang. They are no longer making sedans or the Ford Focus or the Fiesta. This is a genuine thing. I found out I was actually car shopping in the last like six months. And the guy was like, dude, we're getting rid of everything that isn't an SUV or a truck or the Mustang. Ford is just stopping production on everything else other than that. So you're going to just start seeing Fiestas and Fusions and Focuses flying off of our, our shelves because we got to get rid of the inventory. Ford is paring down because it wasn't selling the way that, you know, nobody's nobody's really going out and buying those things. DC, similarly, is probably looking at all their titles, looking at the, the, the comics that get written in about, the comics that people are saying they read, for, you know, their books for. And yeah, a guy who gets six pages in a, in a, you know, group book that isn't just about him, where he is not the title character. They're like in the back issues volume that I have, not a single cover. Yeah. Green Arrow, Green Arrow is not making the cover of World's Finest. He's he might as well be like what's a, what, like Congo Bill, you know. I, I don't know what else. It's kind of like if you, it's like putting a show on Saturday night and not knowing why it doesn't do well on primetime television. Like you buried it. Of course, it's not going to do well. 
you know, the the nights that people are watching television are not this night. You put it on at 3 o'clock in the afternoon on a Saturday. Of course people are going to miss the show. It's not on a 7 p.m. on a Friday night or a Tuesday. You know, it's like, yeah, cancel the show. It's, it's like what happened to Firefly. I get the impression that they just didn't give it a chance. Because if you look at all the stories that we covered for him, they're all very similar and they're not much longer, if longer at all. And then he shows up in Justice League. And he gets more screen time and more page lengths and more characterization. Because remember that one time he was like a traitor for a whole issue and he had to prove his innocence? Mm-hmm. He gets more in-depth stories under Gardner Fox than he does in his own titles that he helms within an amalgam book or a, a, a compilation book. Yeah, I bet he was doing badly. I, I have like a two-part comparison here that entertains me, and so I have to voice it. So you remember how the Brave Little Toaster goes to Mars and whatever that third Brave Little Toaster movie was that nobody saw? All of the animals and all of the appliance, actually, yeah, all of the animals are uh, part of the the master, the the kid who has grown up is running like a vet service or whatever, and it's just hey, there's mm-hmm. the song about uh, there's this there was this time I was in real need and the this guy showed up and saved my day and now I'm hanging out with him forever. Uh, is Gardner Fox the master from? brave little toaster and is everyone else about to get on a rocket to mars i mean they've already been in space they might as well true i genuinely think for all the crap we give gardner fox that is a man who utilitarianly makes a lot of something out of nothing yeah and he's like the he's like that guy that you always like bring your garbage food to and somehow makes like really good stew Gardner Fox is the guy who invented ramen. <laughs> you know, like he's going to take all the clippings and all the weird crap and the pig's feet and all that stuff. He's going to make a really good broth and then he's going to put all the good stuff in it and then he's going to give it to you. And you're like, this is great. And he's like, I just used garbage and somehow I made it work. Yeah. And and I mean, God willing, it took him 30 years. Yeah, like credit you know, where it's it, due. It, like, wasn't, it wasn't an easy, <laughs> it wasn't an easy road. He made the turnaround, but who boy. It was a turnaround. Yeah, it was rough going. <laughs> I I remember the chicken being stuffed down a man's throat hole. God, um, I forgot I about that. Original Do- <laughs> you hate I remember that. original Dr. Fate. We argued about whether or not that made Jay a bad guy, and I still maintain that it does make him a villain because there's no way that man survived. But, you know, I remember old Dr. Fate and stuff like that, and the old Hawks, and how terrible Carter was to Shaira. You know, Gardner Fox still had has some outdated mentalities about how to deal with women, as evident by the way that some of the characters speak to Wonder Woman. But he's definitely writing Wonder Woman better than Kaniger. Yeah. And that's saying something. Now, now, what is funny is both Green Arrow and Martian Manhunter are going to lose their titles. Martian Manhunter is going to stop appearing in Detective Comics. Green Arrow has already stopped appearing, as per our coverage. In World's Finest. Martian Manhunter's the one that's going to stop showing up in Justice League, though. I forgot about that. And he will be replaced by Hawkman. And I genuinely wonder if that is because you can't have two Superman-level characters on the same team. Just a speculation. That is getting a little bit further ahead. I'm sure we'll cover that when we get to that actual coverage. But it is just really interesting to see green arrows sort of slow descent after not really being given a chance it's like a it's like a second stringer being let go from a team 
You hardly played him. Of course he had bad numbers. You've got to give him a chance. And it just feels like they weren't. And to be giving the challengers of the unknown their own book. And it goes for years. And they are a footnote in DC's history currently. Is It's just bizarre to see kind of where these characters are and where they start. Like to, Just to know that Green Arrow is going to be in Green Lantern in a few years. And that hard traveling hero storyline and, and snowbirds don't fly. And it was like, this is what you had and you messed it up. Well, thank God you turned around and it took you a few years, but you got where you had to go. But still, well, how did you let that go? And it really is evidence, I think, to the idea of still not really understanding this medium. And not having the the instant feedback that we have now today, where you've got like social media and um, people tweeting the second they get the book, and you know YouTube with reviews on books and things like that, you have that sort of instant feedback to see what the, what people are responding to. And you could have like ordered you know six more issues or extended that the whole contract and that run for longer. Back then, it was like yeah, you know, you got started getting letters going. What happened to Green Arrow? I really liked him. It's like you're three months too late, man. We got rid of that character. You know, like you had to, you had to tell us when you wanted to. You couldn't have just sat back and just let it happen. The communication between reader and and publishers uh, wasn't there, and the know-how in this industry is probably still getting thought out because they're recovering from being told you have to restart everything because it's weird and too sexy and it's going to make kids, you know, be criminals. And so when you have to like you know etch a sketch your entire lineup and you're trying to figure out how all these people fit probably a big issue and that makes things difficult so it, it is just a it's it, it's a nice thing for us to see to experience as it happens and knowing where it goes this too shall pass yeah <laughs> it really is kind of one of those things after a certain point after a certain number of years of a superhero being around they not only do they never really die, they never really get canceled. Yeah. Uh, and if you don't have anything else, I think we can go to recommendations. I think that about does it for me. Okay. Um, I have been attempting to broaden my musical horizons lately by, you know, just typing in a genre on Pandora and letting it go wild. Isn't it the best? Um, which is something, it's something I do every couple of years. Just be like, what music am I missing? Um... And a band that I have liked ever since I kind of heard them collaborate with a group that I really enjoy is Tupperware Remix Party. I... Um, they did some work with the guys from Game Grumps when they did Starbomb. They are a, like, electronica synth funk band. Um, and it's, like, guitars and keyboards and synth drums and they're just really fun. And they all have such positive, upbeat songs. But they're just, like... Yeah, like you kind of just bob your head to them, and they are in that. I don't know if anybody's familiar with with, with like synth wave or synth rock at the moment. It's kind of like that '80s aesthetic, you know, music soundtrack music that's like very synthesizer heavy, and people have kind of really turned that into a nice genre lately. Um, and these guys do a really great job with this music, and it's it's like I said, it's upbeat, it's happy, it's got good messages. Um, it's just nice to listen to. <laughs> Um, they usually go by TWRP, twerp. Um, and, uh, they're very similar to like the proto men, 
which is another like video game themed band that does a lot of like chiptune like rock music um but yeah they're fun to check out and if you get a chance to look at them they're just it's kind of like the gorillas but like more less like salvador dali eccentric weird out outside let's do some weird like funky music like the gorillas tend to do and it's a little bit more like what if everything was nice and happy and also like rocked really hard and you're like yeah yeah i could i could drive to that music <laughs> or like do some work to it or like you know i'm feeling down i'm gonna listen to that so they're they're a fun band that is tupperware remix party driving music is such a genre yeah I'm actually going to go music as well uh, in a different direction. Um, I have heard a couple of Tyler, the Creator's songs uh, from the more recent albums. uh, And I went back and I was like, you know what? I'm going to give this a try and listen to the first full out. I I believe it's the first full album. Like I haven't, I haven't done the poke around on Wikipedia and get context, but uh, Goblin and it's it is confessional in a way that in the way that Eminem used to feel for me where it was here it feels like here are songs that are sort of laying bare uh how you feel at a dark level Eminem uh Guns and Roses NWA all thing all bands i can't really i don't really feel like i can go back to as much because in part because there's a performative aspect to that misogyny that i don't hear as much in tyler the creator so for those who don't know like i guess tyler the creator's been described as horrorcore i don't really know but it's it's very at least Goblin is very heavy, slow rap that's very dark. Um, Ominous could occasionally be used as a word. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's, yeah, it's spooky rap. Uh, <laughs> he's good. I like him. I like him, too. From what I've heard, I've enjoyed. But he is he's a very specific genre of rap yeah. that you don't hear a lot of. So, yeah, I mean, I'm... I'm really not that far into his catalog, but there are a couple lines that have stuck with me. That's good. As always, we encourage all of our listeners to find weird music and, and listen to it occasionally and just be like, oh, that's a thing. Play um, the Spotify word game where you literally just type a word into Spotify and see what comes up. Like, I think mm-hmm. I put in hell once and I got some interesting shit. And like I said, play Pandora Roulette. Type in a genre or type in a band that you know. And just let it go. Um, but it's fun to kind of do, and it expands your horizons. And occasionally, you find a group you've never heard before, and then you're like, "What is this whole thing?" And you learn something about yourself, or a new group of people, and a new group of fandom. Um, I think that'll do it for this episode. We, as we say goodbye, and we play taps for Green Arrow, and we will see him, of course, again. You know, he's not going away; he's just not staying here. Um, but we'll see him in Justice League when we get back to our coverage there. Um, but this is a big deal. For us and our coverage, this is the first time we've ever seen the death of a character in terms of their run. And I'm glad we did this. I'm glad we had some time to talk about it, you know, and see what that was like. Once we get one that's more narratively fulfilling, I'll be interested to see how that goes. Yes, please. Um, but like, like, like a very good solid like, and 
scene kind of ending, but like we won't know until we get there. Um, that being said, uh, be good to each other. We love you all, and we'll see you all next time. DC Detectives can be found on SoundCloud and iTunes. To stay in the know, check out our Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. With that, it was done, but there was a silver lining. If Green Arrow was only going to be in Justice League from now on, that meant Gardner Fox could do whatever he wanted. Would we see something like The Flash of Two Worlds for Green Arrow? Or would he just be a background character until Denny O'Neill got a hold of him? There was one other silver lining, though. We were about to go back to Green Lantern. <laughs>